You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, thank you all for coming today and thank you Aaron and Jennifer for inviting me to moderate this session. Although Professor Richard Dyer needs no introduction, he's certainly going to get one. And uh, I'm just have to realise that sounds a little like a threat. So, uh, by way of said introduction, I just thought it would be worth outlining some of the qualities that we're likely to associate with his research. Perhaps the first aspect uh, that springs to mind for most of us is his focus down through the decades on oppressed or marginalised groups, including but not limited to sexual and ethnic minorities in books such as White and The Matter of Images. And of course, this is to say nothing of Richard's emphasis on the diversity and complexity of representations of majority groups and cultures, notably in his analysis of the male pinup in the pages of Screen and the ideological implications of pleasure in mainstream films, from the sound of music to speed in only entertainment. Regardless of his object of study, he avoids losing sight of how all spectators belong to multiple, often antagonistic social groupings, and in much of his most memorable work, he deftly addresses how film attempts, though not always successfully, to work through these contradictions. Part of what makes his approach so engrossing and illuminating is the wide-ranging corpus we encounter from one article or book to the next. In the space of a song, examines Hollywood classics, Italian and Hindi musicals, and black exploitation thrillers. Now You See It considers gay and lesbian cinema produced in Sweden during the First World War, Weimar Germany, post-occupation France, and America from the 50s onward. Pastiche forges connections between Hamlet and Cheryl Dunia's Watermelon Woman, and his many groundbreaking studies of stars draw our attention not only to significant figures like Lillian Gish, Lana Turner, and Jane Fonda, but also to major talents who were underused or squandered by the studio system, such as Lena Horne and Paul Robeson. When talking to others about his work before and during the conference uh, this week, one word that people mentioned repeatedly was accessible. And this is certainly a product of his seemingly effortless clarity and eloquence as a writer, but it also stems, I think, from the wonderful autobiographical strand that frequently surfaces in his work, not least in his two contributions to the BFI classic series. Brief Encounter begins and ends with evocations of his mother's distinction between two kinds of film, the good and the lovely. And in between, he offers a fittingly subtle analysis of David Lean's rich but unobtrusive blend of melodrama and realism. His recent monograph on Adolce Vita begins with a recollection of him passing himself off as over 16 to watch the film. From there, he progresses to an engaging discussion of Fellini's complex mise-en-scene of Roman nightlife and Christian imagery. Aaron and Jennifer spoke a good deal this morning about how vital a role the ISS seminar played in bringing PhD students, early career researchers, and more established scholars together down through the years. And Richard's work is such a valuable addition to our seminar precisely because his insights and the arguments they convey are relevant to us all regardless of our lived experience or our career stage. Indeed, in Now You See It, he emphasises that the very conditions of cultural production, and I quote, limit what can be said, but also make saying possible. They both form and deform all expression. At a time when debates regarding the visibility and representation of various social groups grow increasingly heated, he reminds us, both in his statement and in his writing more broadly, to remain sensitive to how representation institutes mistreatment of given groups, but also to prevent our own preconceptions from inhibiting genuine investigations of our own into the narratives we see and hear. All this is to say not just what a privilege and pleasure it is to have Richard speaking here, but also how fortunate we are to have him speaking on sound, at a time when there is a striking record of important research focusing on sound and music on the island of Ireland. 
just some of the names that come to mind are Liz Green, Nessa Johnson, our own beloved Jennifer O'Mara, wherever she is, uh, Amy Mullen, and the late Daniela Kulzic Wilson, almost all of whom have presented at previous ISS seminars. And it seems doubly apt to have Richard here since he has already been involved in our screen studies as a distinguished adjunct professor in film studies in UCD. On behalf of all present, thank you, uh, Richard, for quite generously accepting our invitation, and I'm sure we're all very much looking forward to hearing about their song. Wonderful, thank you. You know, very often when people do that, they they find something, they read it out, and he's written this, he's written. You, thank you. Yeah, you felt it's a very odd thing to say, but it's quite moving to have been read um, and because one knows that people. I, don't, I, tend to, I tend not to try to think about people reading because I think that's a, that the way to write is not to think about other people reading it um, because then you might get anxious. But it's very moving to feel that you have been read. So I do thank you very much. And of course, I thank you so much, and of course specifically Jennifer and Aaron, for inviting me. I was very honoured to be invited anyway, and it's of course always lovely to be invited to Dublin. But I've been particularly, felt, felt the honour even more uh, since I've been here. Partly of the 20 years, so it's a kind of very significant one to be invited to. Partly the North-South um, project behind it. Uh, and but also, what I really didn't know about, was the sense of this being very much about young career researchers, graduates and so on. And so in other words, a sense of growing a film culture, growing a film studies, a, a film studies culture, you might say. And I think that's very, very exciting and certainly very different from other sort of film, or film studies organizations I can think of. And I was particularly impressed that you had the two fabulous panels on, both on new ways of doing film studies in relation to audiovisual material, uh, and on the other hand, uh, thinking about film studies kind of out there in the world and, and what that's about. So I thank you very much for inviting me, but also for the experience of being here. This is a talk, it's entitled, Is It Their Song? Um, and it, I'm starting off from an observable phenomenon, social phenomenon, the idea that people feel they have their song, our song. Um, and there, are, it, there is some beginning to be, it's quite uh, pre not very well advanced, but there is beginning to be research done on interviewing people about well, what do they say is their song, what kinds of things are important to them about it. And really we might say our song is where people, uh, two or usually two people, it could be more, identify a song, a song that already exists, uh, and they identify that as somehow either being marking like when they met or some event or whatever, or even as expressive of their relationship, or somehow summing up in, in song uh, something about their relationship. And uh, this is just from uh, some research that was done about interviewing people uh, and about their song. Um, and uh, talking about uh, the, the importance of it uh, on various occasions and so on. And here is another piece of research uh, which was done, in fact, uh, in, uh, for L magazine, but it was very similar. But I was quite interested by them actually focusing much more on its presence in movies, in films, this idea of uh, our song, or it might be in TV as well. You've seen it before, the couple will have an intense argument, there will be a big revelation, uh, leading some sort of split time or past couple will randomly spot each other while a sappy love song 
I wouldn't have said exactly myself, a love song plays faint in the background, honey, they're playing our song. Actually, I couldn't think of a single film exactly <laughs> that describes. But at the same time, it's rather like someone spoke about this morning, I think it's into the slasher film. All the things one thinks, there's always a kind of an ideal type of what it is, and then it's very hard to find actual examples of it. But that doesn't mean the ideal type doesn't have a sort of validity as a kind of, so it's folk memory, you might say. So I'm interested in thinking about this idea of our song, and how does that actually function in films? Or how does it work in films? I think it's a phenomenon, the idea of our song. You know, I think in the previous uh, quote, there's something out there, it's, there's always been, it's been there forever, the idea of the, um, of, uh, perhaps I think not that there, I thought there was somewhere it says, from time immemorial, there's been this idea of um, the our song. But I think it actually really only becomes popular when, when there is the possibility of a widespread mass of the circulation of songs. Initially, of course, through sheet music and through the piano, and then after that, through the development of, obviously, recorded sound. And very often, uh, when people talk about our song, they mean actually a particular recording of a song. So it's a quite specific thing. But it's something that's quite explicitly referenced in films. And I just want to show you an example of that. Actually, could we turn the lights? Um, sorry. Um, and this is from a film. This is from a film, Mannequin, uh, by uh, directed by Frank Borzage. And this is a scene near the beginning of the film when uh, Jessie, played by Joan Crawford, goes out to dinner with her husband Eddie, um, and uh, he is, and Eddie encourages her to dance with his boss, John Hennessy, who's played by Spencer Tracy. So they're dancing together, and this is then what happens. Hey, Briggs, dump a flock of nickels in that gadget, will you? Do you mind, Mr. Hennessy? It's not so good. No, it, it isn't. I like to dance with you, only if... Well, it's this particular song. What? It's ours. Eddie's in mind, I mean. You mean you wrote it? <laughs> no. No, we, we fell in love to it. So we always dance to it together. That must sound awfully silly to you. No. No, it doesn't. I, I just didn't think things like that happened outside the books. Uh, Miller. This is your song, Miller. That leaves it up to you. Is that anything matter? No, I just explained to Mr. Hennessy about our song. Oh. Oh, but we can skip this one. Go ahead. Well, no, don't give anything away, Miller. I wouldn't. Yeah, you're right, Mr. Hennessy. You don't find them around every place, huh? Goodbye, Mr. Hennessy. Goodbye, Mrs. Miller. And so they were married. Well, here it looks like it might be love. Might be. We even get a song for those women. You may have noticed also that Eddie seems a bit less committed to the song. Um, and, uh, as you will guess, that becomes a, uh, a, a part of the plot development. I'll say some more about that in a moment. But so, I'm talking about this idea of our song, your song, their song. Uh, it, it, it can come in all sorts of forms. For instance, in the, the Two Orphans, which exists in many different forms. So there's a, the original uh, theatre melodrama of 1874 in French. The, the famous uh, Griffith version of it called Renamed Orphans of the Storm. Many other versions. I think possibly the last one 
was this 1954 uh, Italian version. But all of them, uh, a song is very important. But in this case, it's a song that a mother sang to her child. And when the, children, when, when the child grows up, she, she is uh, kidnapped and becomes a beggar, and she earns money by singing the song. And there are various dramatic moments when the mother, who is a, a, a lady, hears this song and thinks, and, and thinks, where is that song coming from, and so on. And there are even very dramatic moments about hearing the song, even in the silent version. It's very interesting how powerfully the idea of the song they share is in that, in that, in that version. Or, of course, a more, possibly more familiar example is from the second version of The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, in which the song, again, is a mother and child, the song that the Doris Day character sings to her son. Both is a bond between them, partly over again the husband, and eventually is important in, in, in saving the dramatic situation at the end of the film. So it doesn't have to be, as we perhaps normally think of it, and as my later examples will be, it doesn't have to be between couples, between sexual couples, but nonetheless it most commonly is. And of course this is very common in opera, but of course the important thing about opera, where you very commonly have a, a duet which is our song, but of course within the kind of weird uh, convention of opera, this is not a song that's known by someone else. In fact, they're not even singing a song in a certain sense. They are expressing their love, because everything is sung, it's therefore expressed in in song. And the same is true of musicals, which again are an odd convention, because there's a way in which these are not familiar songs in the culture of the characters which they happen to be singing. On the contrary, these are songs which um, are, are merely furtherance of the narrative in a certain sense. And the fact that they're sung is not really related to an idea of this being a shared our song that, that, uh, that they, um, is available to them in the culture. Probably the most famous example of an R song in films is As Time Goes By from Casablanca. Um, and you don't really need to, well, you put that mostly imagine what you will know it, although it was interesting in relation to this afternoon's panel about can I even assume that everybody knows Casablanca? You know, it's interesting how at one time that would put, well, everyone knows Casablanca. And it is still one of the films that is still shown on television, is still shown. Uh, in repertory cinemas and so on. So it's not like it's disappeared, but quite how wide you know, it is. But anyway, we're in a scene uh, in, 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 in Casablanca, uh, and a character played by Ingrid Bergman, Ilsa, has come into the, the bar, which has been set up as Humphrey Bogart's bar, Rick, and she asks the pianist to sing a song. So let's just watch that. I'm so sorry about the sound, because once it went one 
one, a couple of points about that. One about the sound, because you then actually hear the song taken up into the soundtrack. So you hear the da 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 da, and that it is used throughout the film. But the what is the point I really mainly want to make about this, apart from its fame, uh, is that it is interrupted. And in fact, in the whole film, you never actually hear the whole song. It is always interrupted. And of course, the whole film story is about interruption. But I think it's very interesting that this perhaps really one of the most true and uh, examples of our song nonetheless shows the sense in which the our song has difficulty nonetheless in affirming itself. It keeps being stopped, it keeps being interrupted. Um, and this, I think, is quite a, a significant... E even this song, and I'll, perhaps it'll be clearer later why I say even this song, is, which I think is a true example of this, truly does express um, Ilsa and, her, uh, and Rick's past love. Nonetheless, it's constantly interrupted. Uh, and of course, in, in Mannequin, uh, as I've already hinted, uh, the uh, things don't, don't work out. And it's already hinted at as the scene we just saw continues. So let's see that. Here it looks like it might be love. Might be. You even got a song with those women. noticed that through uh, that he that the husband is constantly looking at his boss again showing that he's not wrapped up in the song in the way that uh, um, Jesse is and uh, and of course it's also significant that she sings the song so although it's a pre-existing song she as it were tries to take possession of it by singing it herself and that makes it even uh, stronger which of course makes even stronger the, the disappointment in the marriage when he starts to get crooked and get involved in all sorts of things and eventually their marriage falls apart. In some ways, of course, that's anticipated by the casting because we, of course, expect uh, this young man to be replaced <laughs> by Spencer Tracy. Uh, so, um, in a way, that, that's also built into it. But I think it's just very interesting that the song is so strongly signalled as our song even named as our song, and she sings it herself. And yet, nonetheless, it's disappointing. In the end, it doesn't work out. And I want to look at this, a similar thing, but in much more recent films, three recent European films, which I think are very interesting in the way they handle uh, what can be described as our song. Um, and a couple of things just to say about these examples. One is that they, once again, as I said, they're all involving songs that are well known before the film. Of course, when I say well known, well known to whom? But they, the, 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 the film itself establishes the pre-existence and well-knownness 
of the song. So even if you don't actually, if you or somebody doesn't actually know, the, well, it's not well known in that sense. Nonetheless, it's set up by the film as being well known. And in fact, they are really pretty well known songs uh, in each case. Uh, and that, I think, is very important in relation to this idea of taking something that's widely circulated and then making it yours, saying it's our song, it's my song, or well, not my, because my single, but our song or uh, their song. And the other thing is the song is actually used in these cases for the great moment of a sort of revelation of truth. Uh, so whereas in the case of Mannequin, the disappointment is not associated with the song. The song gets forget forgotten in a certain sense. Here, the song itself becomes the moment of revelation about uh, the questioning of whether these songs really are their song in these particular cases. And the moment of revelation obviously relates to a tradition going back into melodrama of all different kinds, including cinema. Uh, the moment of revelation is a kind of capital moment of the melodramatic structure. So these films do very much fit into a melodramatic structure. Well, the first is Phoenix, directed by Christian Petzold, Germany, 2014. This tells a story of um, a woman who has been in the concentration camps, uh, Nelly, and she, her face has been completely disfigured. And she is looked after by her friend, as you see here also, Lena. Lena. And um, Lena persuades her to have her face remodelled. Um, so, to, so that it uh, kind of looks, it, so it's kind of the, the almost kind of horror quality is taken away from her face. And after that, she meets her ex-husband. Her ex-husband doesn't actually recognise her, but nonetheless, he says, "But you look like my my ex-wife who died in the camps. Uh, uh, but I would, would you be willing to pass yourself off as my wife?" because then I can claim reparations that were due to Jewish victims of, of the Holocaust. So that's the kind of plot situation we're in by the end of the film. And she doesn't, she doesn't just tell him that she, is, she actually is his wife, because she suspects that he betrayed her to the Nazis. So that's why she doesn't tell him. So that's the situation we're in. She, she, they, they, this is a husband and wife, but he doesn't realize that she is his wife. She, he trains her to sing because she was a singer. So he trains her to sing like his wife. And they sing a particular song. Now the song they sing, and then she has to sing the song at the end of the film to try and convince all his friends that she is his wife. Now the song they that she sings is actually a song that was already an important song in the relationship, in the friendship, which is a kind of queer friendship. Uh, between uh, uh, Nelly and Lena, and it's a song called Speak Low by uh, Kurt Weill. Let's play a little bit of what they listen to is Kurt Weill's own recording of the song. Speak low when you speak low, speak low. now play a more extended version uh, just because I think the words are very important with that, that sense of speak, of, of, of speak low um, it's, these are, these are moments, because this is from a musical One Touch of Venus and it's about kind of, if you have to be cautious, low, love is something so precious but so fragile that you really have to cherish it. Obviously this is very significant in the story of Phoenix which is the story of this uh, husband and wife uh, the husband doesn't realise he is talking to his wife. So I think I'll just play a bit of this because um, I think it's an interesting um, to, to just to follow the words a bit. This is in a version by Katina Ranieri. But just a bit. 
And that actually is the end of the film. And of course, it's, of course she's, the, the last words she sings are, I wait. <laughs> um, so, I, uh, so the last words are, I wait. And she actually pours it and waits some more. But of course, nothing is coming because it isn't their song, even though it was meant to be their song. And of course, she then lead, reaches out to take her handbag. And of course, that means her arm with the number on, the tattooed number on, is in front of his face, and that, that is the end of the film. Now, let's take another example. This is 45 years um, um, in the UK. When was particularly I'm always, I hate all the terms for the country I live in. I hate England because people use it to mean Scotland and Wales. I hate Great Britain because of the great, and I hate the UK because of the United and the Kingdom. So, um, <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. But anyway, uh, nonetheless, that's UK is what it's normally called. And this is a film about a married couple, played by Tom Courtney and, um, the name for the moment, anyway. Charlotte Rampling, thank you very much, um, who were called Kate and Jeff. Um, and because they were ill for, uh, when they had their 40 and 40th wedding anniversary, they had to put off celebrating it, but now they're celebrating their 45th anniversary. Um, but suddenly, um, Jeff gets uh, uh, information that his long-ago lover, Katya, has, her body has been found. And they have discovered um, that uh, two things. First of all, that, she, that he was married to her, um, or at least he pretended to be married to her, and they're accepting that he was married to her, which Kate Charlotte Rampling didn't know. And also that Katya, the, bot, the person who's been found dead, after an accident years and years ago, uh, was pregnant with uh, Jeff's child. And again, uh, they, uh, Jeff and Kate do not have children, and uh, Kate did not know that Katya had been pregnant. And Jeff kind of goes off the rails, is incredibly overcome by this, uh, and, see, and it seems to completely change him. Uh, and, she, and it also makes Kate question, well, what was this relationship in the past, and what is now our relationship? It's a film that's very hard to sum up because it's all very understated 
Um, and in fact, I suppose in that sense, it's very English. Uh, it's, it's very understated and, you know, you have to sort of think you understand and nobody says what they think and what they feel and so on. But nonetheless, they are both completely, completely their lives turned over by this revelation. Now, I, I'll come back to, to have that to the Newmont, but first of all, let's talk about, the, sorry, this is just the two characters. There is a lot of other music in the film, uh, and in fact, their tastes are rather sort of progressive or radical in some sense or another. So, for instance, they like to listen to this R&B version of Stagger Lee, and Stagger Lee was a, uh, as I'm sure most of you know, was a, is a kind of a figure from uh, African-American folklore, really, who was a, a pimp who shot a man and died in prison, but often was taken up as a figure of black power. So they like this sort of, sort of in a way, rebellious black music, but also they like the sort of French music. This is actually from a piece by Liszt with words by Victor Hugo, uh, it's about, you know, what, what do you do in a certain situation? How do you forget a quarrel when you go to sleep? How do, you for, how do you forget an enchantment when you fall in love? So there's a slightly cynical word. So they, they're kind of very educated couple uh, and sort of as a radical chic you might describe them as. But the song that is their song is Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. This again has, like in the previous example, a rather complicated history. It was a song written for uh, Jer the Jerome Kern uh, uh, and Otto Harbach musical, Roberta, which was made into a film with Fred Stone and Ginger Rogers. Um, and this is a song which, uh, you know, that's a, it's set in the world of fashion. It's, if you like, a very white piece of music. And in fact, Jerome Kern is barely yet in jazz. I mean, as a kind of history of musical theatre, Jerome Kern is really more operetta than jazz. Uh, and had great difficulty when he had to write jazzier pieces. So it's kind of very white piece of music in a certain sense. And, but it became a huge hit in the 60s for the Platters, who were, of course, an African-American group. And it's that version that, uh, that is, the, is the our song of uh, Kate and Jeff. This is the song that means. So it's very interesting, this whole cultural formation of expressing your sense of being our song through a song that was written for other circumstances, sung by people in another country, but also of a different ethnicity, and yet nonetheless somehow claimed, generously, I don't mean this is to put down the easy put down or anything, but claimed, as it were, made into their song. But when, um, now, the relationship, you know, as I say, they've, they've been completely kind of thrown, thrown by this revelation from Jeff's past, but nonetheless they continue with the 45-year celebration, and there comes a moment when they have to dance together. And Jeff says, oh, we must put on smoke gets in your eyes. And we have this extraordinary sequence, which is a bit long, but it's really worth seeing all of, uh, when we see the, the way in which we get such a strong sense of the difference between Jeff and uh, Kate. And in the sense in which Jeff, Jeff's got over it. Jeff can sing along as well. Jeff, you know, he shrugged it off. Yeah, it was a bit upsetting, but, you know, now we just carry on. Nothing's happened. Kate, on the other hand, feels that her whole understanding of their relationship has been completely destroyed. And yet she is still nonetheless forced to go along with this song and, as it were, forced to kind of dance out, play out, the, before the, their friends and family, uh, to play out this sense of they are now dancing to their song. Let's see this. Ask me how I do. My love. 
interesting about that whole use of our song is it clear that Jeff, and he's the one clearly is more committed to it, has, is not listening to the song. This is not a happy song. This is not a song about, oh, isn't it lovely to be in love? It's about, you know, these things end, these things inevitably end. It's a, it's a, it's a tragic song. Uh, but it's like, and I think that's also quite common. People don't listen to the songs that are their song in, in films possibly in life. They don't really pay attention. They make it into theirs by ignoring uh, the vital aspects of it. My last example is um, one that I don't know if anyone here would have seen, which is a pity because it's a really wonderful film, La Pazza Gioia. It was briefly distributed in the States with the misleading title, Like Crazy. It actually means mad joy. Uh, and it was a huge success in Italy. It ran in one cinema in Rome for over a year, um, and you know, which is very unusual nowadays for a film to run in one cinema for a long, long time, especially in Italy, actually. Um, and this is a film about two um, people who are in a kind of very, actually a very, a really actually genuine, it's hard to say, but a genuinely very nice sort of mental care facility. Uh, you know, one that's quite sort of progressive and, and gentle and with a lot of freedom and so on. Um, but, but they are, and the film you know, makes it clear in a way they both, they both need to be uh, in this care. One is Donatella, uh, who is the younger one you see without the scarf here, and the other is Beatrice, uh, who is the, the older one, and the richer one, in fact, with the scarf. But we don't, it's the, the, what the, our song I'm going to deal with actually relates to the Donatella character. Donatella is a very kind of uh, troubled, and she actually tried to kill her son. Um, she, her husband has left her and so on. So she's very troubled in all sorts of ways. Um, and throughout the film, though, she talks about how, how wonderful her father was. Talks about the fact that her father was the pianist uh, for Gino Paoli. Now, Gino Paoli is one of the very great singer-songwriters of the post-war era in Italy. Um, so she says, oh, he was, you know, he was Gino Paoli's pianist. Uh, now he has his own band, he's really wonderful, and the band is called the Hurricane Trio. And we may already have a sense there that perhaps this is not quite at the same heights of artistic achievement as are associated with uh, Gina Paoli. And throughout the film, she listens to, on her uh, a telephone, she listens over and over again to a song, oh, this is in the wrong direction, a song called Senza Fine which is a, a, one of those songs I do think, if I was an Italian audience, I think all Italians, even really pretty young ones, would know this song. It's a massive, massive hit. I think it was also in some other countries in, uh, of Europe, but uh, perhaps not here. But there are English-language versions. Um, and this song was enormously successful. And it's a song that, um, which, um, let me just, yes, and she plays it by, by Gina Paoli, which he also himself sang. Um, and which were also a very famous version on television by the singer Ornella Bernoni. Um, and just to give you, a, perhaps a, just to play you a bit of this, and also let you hear the, I put here the translation to give a sense of what the song is about. The kind of, the kind of, fan, the, the, the dreamy quality, the dreamy hopeful quality that the song has. Senza fine, trascini la nostra vita, senza un attimo di respiro per sognare, per poter ricordare. 
ricordare quel che abbiamo già vissuto senza fine tu sei un attimo senza fine non hai ieri non hai domani tutto è ormai nelle tue mani mani grandi mani senza fine non mi importa della luna non mi importa delle stelle tu per me sei luna e stelle tu per me sei sole e cielo tu per me sei tutto quanto tutto quanto well, so that's the song. It keeps being played, as I say, it's a very well-known song in Italy. They, the, uh, Beatrice and Donatella, kind of get run away from their mental um, sort of care home um, and have various scrapes and incidents. But at one point, uh, uh, Donatella is actually uh, run over in somewhere where, in fact, her husband, her father, her father is working, uh, and her father does come to see her. Um, and then they have this conversation um, about, uh, which is partly about the song Sense of Fine. Actually, from where I was, I couldn't hear when she does actually put the phone on and play the song, and then he says, you know, she says, oh, you composed it, you wrote it for me, and then he says, oh, no, I didn't, but then, but then said, well, I did, but of course I gave it to someone else. And it's a kind of heart-stopping moment, because you think she, this one thing she cherishes, that her father wrote the song for her, is going to be taken away from her. But he quickly kind of rose back on it, and she remains sort of under the illusion that he did actually write the song for her. So, taking those three films together, I then go back to my question of my, the talk is, is it their song? And I think in these particular cases, but even to some extent Casablanca, even though Casablanca, I think there's never any doubt that the song really does express 
the feelings between uh, Ilsa and Rick, uh, and which for various reasons are kind of interrupted. Um, but nonetheless, it doesn't throw into question how the truth of their relationship, or indeed the truth of the song expressing their relationship. So in that, but even in that case, it's constantly interrupted. And as we've seen in the case of Mannequin, uh, it, it, it's just really, it's only, it's she that thinks it's their song. But in these cases, for a time, each one, each character thinks that these are their song, or try to make it their song. But we might say, is it ever their song? Not just thinking about these characters, but in general, is when we say our song, is it ever our song? It's, it's never really our song. And so, can it ever be their song? Can it ever be our song? It's always the song that someone else has written. It's written in different circumstances. It has different cultural associations. We try to make, make it ours, make it into our illusion that it's ours, but nonetheless, it can never really be our song. Uh, and, but even more than that, I want to suggest that that problem is not simply one about songs. It's not simply one about mass production and songs written out or works written, written elsewhere. But in a way, it's the nature of communication itself, that actually we constantly kind of have the illusion that we speak language. We constantly have the illusion that, that we make art, that we make art the culture. Now, of course, we do make it, but we make it with other people. It's very complicated the way we make it. And we always make it inheriting what's already come down to us from the past. There's a sense in which we never really in that kind of magical way, and that's why, of course, it's beautiful in Casablanca or in musicals, it's magical that here, yes, this really is us. We fully, it's what emanating from us, this wonderful sense of, of song, of communication, of love, all that matters. But it's always an illusion. It's always temporary. And what these songs, I think, what these three films particularly do, is, as it were, push sufficiently at the song to reveal actually it never was their song it could never be their song it came from somewhere else it was based on a fiction in their relationship and that that is a kind of intensification of the general sense that we all of us all the time are kind of doing the best we can with the language the culture the images everything that comes down to us we're doing the best we can to to make them ours, to participate in them, and yet there's always the possibility that we, we, we realise that actually they're not really ours. I mean, the, the most simple example of that is if you say a word, one word over and over again, suddenly that seems very strange. This word that you were using all the time, you suddenly think, that's a bit weird. Why, what, why that sound to mean that? That's a very common, easy, and you shrug it off. And most of the time we shrug it off. But there's always that possibility. There's always that possibility. Now, what do we do about that? Well, if we're Nelly, we walk away. But we can't actually walk away from culture. We can't walk away from kind of doing the best we can with the illusion. Or we suffer the illusion, like Kate. We, we are trapped in the illusion, and we suffer it insofar as we are aware of it. Or, and maybe that's the fortunate choice, we're like Donatella, and we are allowed to maintain stay with the illusion that we speak language, that the song is genuinely ours. But really, it never is. And there's always that wobble. And that, I think in some ways, that wobble explains why cultural change happens, why things keep having to be changed, why there is history at all, that things never are quite fully 
uh, as it were, embodying what we want, what we are. And for that reason, we have to go, we, we realize it from time to time, and we have to change it. There's a sense in which it's never our song, but it's all we've got, and we will sing it the best we can. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you.